Good afternoon, everyone. It is currently 1.30 p.m. on a rainy uh, Sunday afternoon in Washington, D.C. I am very happy to tell you all that we have our first guest on the podcast. So we are going to be discussing the farmer protests in India today. And we have a research assistant from the Eurasia Center, uh, Rishi Parikh, to join us. He is a graduate student at American University and also one of our uh, interns at the Eurasia Center. And he is going to be our first guest on the podcast ever. So congratulations, Rishi. Uh, would you like to introduce yourself? Yeah, of course. Uh, so my, as my colleague said, my name is Rishi. I'm a first year grad student at American University and I'm in my second semester and I'm going for my master's in international affairs. And I have a lot of interest in South Asian uh, uh, politics. All right, great. Uh, Nick, do you want to take the opportunity to introduce yourself again? Or are we just going to go straight through? Uh, I'm the co-host. That's, that's all I am. <laughs> there you go. All right. So uh, Nick and Arisha are going to kick it off with a discussion about Indian politics. So take it away, Nick. So Rishi, uh, it's good to have you. Um, obviously, uh, I think the Indian farmer protests haven't been discussed in media as much as I think they deserve to be. Um, so, you know, without further ado, I think we can just get into the context here uh, about what's going on um, in India. I think that would be good. And I think the first question I want to ask you is, you know, India's ruling party, uh, the BJP, what is it? What led to its, to its rise in, uh, in 2014? Uh, the BJP is a right-wing Hindu nationalist organization. And I think its rise is just consistent with what we're seeing around the whole entire world with, in regard to nationalism. I think a, a lot of the uh, countries around the world, and in this case, India, has seen uh, the majority want to finally uh, be consistent in taking over power, and it's exactly what we're seeing, and um, the BJP is a perfect example of how Hindu nationalists have, uh, have shown up in great numbers. And they elected a leader, Narendra Modi, to lead them. And that's what's happening right now. Um, yeah, and it's something that we're seeing around the whole entire world, from America to Brazil to Hungary and to even right. India. Um, so you mentioned Narendra Modi. So would you say Narendra Modi, you know, he, he's, I mean, he's really a central force in this. Would you say that he was the the driving force behind uh, BJP, the BJP's rise in, in 2014? Yeah, absolutely. I think Narendra Modi is a very, like many nationalist leaders, he's very charismatic, he's populist, he knows what the people want to hear, he knows what the majority of his country wants to hear. He is a speaker who, uh, that a lot of people looked up to, and he almost has he now has a cult of personality around him. And I think a, a lot of people looked to him and thought India is a very, has a society that is full of corruption. And I think a lot of people looked to Narendra Modi and thought we finally have someone who 
what they think is not as corrupt and who could lead America into a new future. And, you know, given Modi's, uh, you know, he's a history of controversy, to put it mildly, around him, um, <laughs> right-wing politics, um, how would you say he's, I guess, transformed Indian, uh, how'd you say he's transformed Indian society in terms of, I guess, what's become acceptable in India t- uh, today? Yeah, exactly. Uh, as you said, he's a, he's a controversial figure. He's had issues in the past. He's had issues in the past with um, uh, dealing with um, the strife that exist in India between Hindus and Muslims, including the 2002 Gujarat riots. And he's transformed India because I think that uh, India has now become a lot more nationalistic and they've started to not care about their minorities as much. And Hindu nationalists have now taken control. And we see that through a lot of his policies, even before the farmers protest from the citizenship amendment bill to the revoking of Jammu and Kashmir's uh, autonomy, and even uh, the building of a Hindu temple in the same spot that there were there was a a, a masjid, so uh, a masjid that was uh, torn down by Hindu nationalists, and I think he's just given power to Hindu nationalists who finally want to, who have for a long time felt that that they that India wasn't being represented by them, I would say, kind of like that there were two mining mi- minorities. There's always been a horrible strife between Hindus and Muslims and Muslims have a huge minority population in India. And I think that Modi just brought them together and said that, uh, you know what, we don't care about the minorities as much and we wanna take control. Uh, again, something that we've seen around the world for a long time. essentially majoritarian rule, which is always uh, never a good direction to go in. Um, yeah, exactly. So then that kind of leads us then to the where we are today in terms of the uh, farmer uh, protests. So uh, Casey, you can, you know, go ahead and get into this uh, specific uh, saga in Indian politics that we're uh, witnessing today. Yeah, so this is interesting to me. Um, specifically, uh, I'm going to do the statistic of the day early uh, because otherwise this episode wouldn't work without it. And our, yeah, that statistic is 58%. Um, and that's because 58% of India's uh, approximately 1.3 billion uh, population are reliant on agriculture for their primary source of livelihood. So it is intriguing to me that as a nationalist and a uh, populist that Narendra Modi is looking to uh, make reforms to what has been a pretty standard aspect of the Indian economy for a long time. So Rishi, if you could just explain what the uh, three uh, laws that were uh, passed entail and what that reform is. Yeah, no, so exactly. The farmers protest uh, has to do with three farmer bills. And as a right-wing politician, Modi has pushed for the expansion of this of the private sector in India's economy. 
uh, he's taken such actions before uh, that have to deal with more uh, right wing right wing um, economic reforms. And the current system right now deals with uh, the Mundis, and they're basically uh, in the current system. India's farmers sell their produce at government-controlled wholesale markets. Uh, these Mundis at assured floor prices, and these Mundis are where middlemen help growers sell harvest uh, to either the state-run company or private players. Um, and they've had issues in the past dealing with corruption and. Sometimes and farmers have had big issues with uh, debt and the farmers in India are really, are, have always been hurting. Um, there's high suicide rates, there's high debt. They've been, climate change has really hurt them um, and they're really struggling. So at a time when, um, at a time when farmers needed more protection, it is really surprising that Modi came in and uh, uh, pushed for these three farmer bills. Uh, so basically what these farmer bills are, are is that the first bill, the Farmers Empowerment and Protection Agreement on Price Assurance and Farm Service Bill, uh, it basically creates a, a whole entire framework for contract farming, where farmers now have to meet the demands of the buyer and at first, you know, it, it doesn't sound horrible, but you have to think about this both on the short term and the long term. And it will probably most likely lead to farmers being exploited through legal clauses and conditions, because now corporations in the private sector can come in and tell farmers what exactly to do. Uh, on top of this, the second bill, the Farming Produce Trade and Commerce Promotion Facilitation Bill, it will now allow farmers to sell their produce at market price directly to private uh, players, which it's true that they might be getting higher prices because uh, now they can sell directly to agriculture businesses, supermarket chains, and online grocery, grocery chains, and they don't have to worry about, uh, you know, the middleman and private players usually do offer higher prices. So, you know, they, they might be getting a high price um, now but now the corporations have all the power to deal uh, to uh, to mandate and to uh, control the prices that farmers might get in the uh, in the long run, because they could easily offer less prices. And uh, farmers are just scared that uh, to do the to sell directly to these corporations, it might lead to the end of the Mundis and the Mundis and there will no longer be a safety net for Indian farmers, which they need and at a time when there's already so many issues. You have the pandemic, you have climate change, you have uh, a debt crisis or a bad economy. And then finally, uh, the last one, it isn't a bill, it's more of an amendment bill, uh, but it basically takes off certain essential commodities from, uh, the, uh, from a, a list of essential commodities and this might, um, uh, this might lead to private players ending up hoarding food items. And when private players hoard food items, they now control the prices. And this might also affect um, uh, farmers. So there, all of this all together, basically what you need to know is that this all heavily deregulates the agriculture sector 
and it puts a lot of power into the private players, which farmers are really scared that will lead to the exploitation of them and might eventually lead to a, the downfall of farmers, especially small farmers who have no power uh, against big corporations. Sure, and it's it also seems to be a veneging of the 2014 campaign promise to uh, maintain that uh, uh, price floor at 50% above uh, production costs for agricultural products and the stated goal. I mean, obviously the pandemic, there are different economic conditions, but the, the BJP said that it was would try to uh, double the price of uh, agricultural products by 2022. And this liberalization seems to be a reneging on that on that deal. So let's actually get to the the protests themselves. The so the bills are passed in September, and the protests themselves began in November in Delhi. So so what's going on there? Yeah. So these bills obviously angered a lot of uh, farmers, especially those in Punjab and Haryana, uh, because they. Uh, they deal a lot with farming and they're also close to Delhi, but a lot of uh, Punjabis and people from Haryana um, and a majority Sikh population came down to Delhi in tractors and they walked there and they came in their cars and trucks and they went to Delhi because they were mad about these farmers bills. And they, they protested and as soon as they went down to Delhi and they were peacefully protesting, they were met with uh, riot police um, tear gas and water cannons. And in the world's largest democracy and in a, a secular government and a place where you're allowed to have free speech, it was a big, it's a big, um, it doesn't look good for India to have this happening where uh, protesters who are mad about um, who are scared for their lives because they think that this might be the end of them, that they will, they were met with these, um, these police who are attacking them. Uh, mm -hmm. So that's when the protest first started. Exactly. And then, so they're, they've now been camped out since November. It's currently February 28th today. And there are these big uh, camps on the outskirts of Delhi, right? Like even on highways. Yeah, they basically created whole entire settlements around Delhi, uh, on the Delhi border, and they plan on staying there until these uh, bills are completely uh, revoked. And when I say settlements, I mean they have, they have everything there. They created houses, they have exercise equipment, they have massage chairs, they have everything you can think of all set up um, uh, around Delhi. They don't, it doesn't seem like they have any plans to leave soon. And the, the scale of these settlements is pretty large, too. It's not yeah, uh, no, small, isolated groups of people. These are, you have to understand, this is the, this country, India has so many people, and there's a lot of people in a lot of these states, and there's a lot of farmers, and they're mad, and they came down, and there's a lot of them around um, uh, Delhi. So these settlements are very huge. All right. And just uh, one, one final question about these uh, protests. So there was, there was a big event on Republic Day. Um, so can you just describe what happened there? Yeah, so on Republic Day, um, 
uh, India's Republic Day, uh, the farmers, uh, and while they're supposed to be very nationalistic on that day and you're supposed to feel pride for India, a lot of these farmers felt like that their government let them down. And uh, so they marched into Delhi and eventually they were, uh, they stormed the Red Fort, uh, which is a historical building within Delhi and a symbol uh, in, uh, in, this, in the area. And uh, they were also met with, uh, and this led, and the big deal with this Red Fort storming was that it led to a lot of, it led to the further vilification of the farmers, uh, these frustrated farmers. Uh, Indian propaganda uh, uh, skyrocketed. They called these people terrorists. They um, called them uh, all Khalistanis, which are, uh, which was a, a group back uh, back in the day that wanted to separate from um, India, and. Uh, eventually, India cracked down even harder on these protesters. They uh, they took out, uh, they blocked the internet. They were uh, canceling. Um, they were suspending uh, Twitter accounts. Uh, they were arresting people. They were arresting journalists who were um, uh, at the scene and. Uh, again, there was more tear gas and riot police, and there was clashing. And again, all of this shows that it's more of the authoritarian uh, viewpoint of uh, of Modi and how he's dealing with these protesters. He's ang he already angered them at first, and now he's angering them even more. And again, like in a in a free democracy, none of this is supposed to happen, and it just shows the path that um, Modi is going on and um, and it, it doesn't look like it's a good one to sum it up. So we have these farm bills and it, you know as you said it doesn't look like you know there doesn't look like the, the, the Indian farmers are going anywhere. Um, so I guess, like, something's got to give. Uh, I mean, I, I'd imagine these bills are, I mean, they've already, you know, what does the future look like? Uh, and, and how does this get resolved? Or does it? Uh, yeah, and that, I think that's, that's the big question is how does this get resolved? Currently, the bills have been uh, suspended by the Supreme Court. Um, but it Farmers, farmers don't care about that. They want it completely revoked and gone. And uh, where does India go from this? Is that even if you do agree with the bills, Modi's heavy hand on the protesters is a big scar on India and its democracy because uh, India has now been called out by the Human Rights Watch, Amnesty International, and the UN Human Rights for how they treated these protesters. And it doesn't look like in this authoritarian path that uh, India is going on and this cult of personality that Modi put around him, um, it affects India, not only India, but um, how, how democracy is supposed to run in the rise of democracy in Asia. Uh, Western countries are also going to have to deal with um, 
uh, how are they going to deal with Modi? Uh, if you want to take a more international affairs uh, point on this, is that uh, India is supposed to be considered the democratic safeguard within, in regard to Asian security, uh, the democracy in South Asia. And uh, a lot of Western countries look to it as an alliance, as in a partnership. But are Western countries willing to bargain their own geopolitical and economic self-interest for democratic and liberal values? And that's something that Western countries probably need to figure out on. I think that the farmers' protest in general need to get more media attention because people need to see uh, how India is treating their own people, especially minority communities. Um, and uh, where it goes from here is that I think the best case scenario is I think the BJP should, these aren't just small protests. BJP should listen to their, their people and their farmers and how they're hurting and revoke the bills. But I don't see uh, the party also either um, taking back these. So it, it's, it's, it's wild what's happening in India and it's, and even establishment has, um, you know, Bollywood actors and cricketers have come in support of Modi. So I think people in India need to figure out who, what they're actually for and what they actually care about because what's happening in India is not good. <laughs> yeah. That, as you noted, India is the democratic cornerstone of Southeast Asia. And this is an entirely different topic, but a counterbalance to China, and they're right now the the weak link when it comes to democracy in the in the quadrilateral. Um, so I, I hope it resolves peacefully. I hope it resolves in a democratic and pluralistic manner. Um, Nick, do you have any final thoughts before we head out? Um, this honestly, what you said about the weak link and. <laughs> Yeah, uh, in the quadrilateral, in the quad, it's called the quadrilateral. Uh, you know, that seems really important um, because, like Rishi said, you know, India is well, it was supposed to be like the, you know, it's it's you know, in, in an ally. It's supposed to be an example, you know, in Southeast Asia that you know, even with 1.3 billion people, that you know, democracy can still work. Um, so I think the direction India is headed in is um, very concerning. Yeah. Well, maybe we'll uh, maybe we'll have you on another time to discuss the uh, the quad issue. What do you think about that? Yeah, that sounds perfect. That's right up my alley. <laughs> well, there we go. Um, this has been a good episode. Uh, thank you, everyone, for listening. Thank you, uh, Rishi, for joining us. Have a good afternoon, morning, evening, wherever you are. Uh, enjoy your day, everyone. Bye.